no reputable historian would reasonably deny the historical reality of Jesus of Nazareth. No reasonable, reputable historian would deny the historical reality of Jesus of Nazareth. Where the argument comes is not so much on the point of whether or not uh, that man lived and walked the face of this earth, and more really the arguments and the, the different positions are staked out on the grounds of his identity, his mission, and the significance of all of that. That is to say, who he is, why he came, and what difference all of that makes. And that's, of course, where the great differences come all across the globe when it comes to the question, the subject of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, why would it matter, of course? Why, why is it even something to, to, to be concerned about? Well, it, it matters because of the claims that his followers have been making about him for centuries and indeed, uh, the claims that Jesus himself made of himself, uh, right in the midst of, of just if you look at the gospel accounts just a little bit before there, the accounts of the resurrection, the accounts of his trial just before his, his crucifixion, you look at the, the ways right in that setting, in, in, the, in that uh, time frame, he referred to himself in answering charges that were made to him. He confessed himself to be the Christ, the Son of Man, the king of the Jews. Now, if those things be true, there are enormous implications, enormous, earth-shaking, life-changing implications if, in fact, those things be true. Now, again, 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 that's not to say everyone agrees. We, we, we agree that he said those things. What is, is the disagreement is on whether or not those things are actually true. And, and a lot of different positions uh, have been staked out uh, on that. And not everyone can be right. Not everyone can be right. Here's a question that we need to ask here this morning. What's your assessment of Jesus? Who is he? Who is he? It's worth considering. Our text this morning is actually from the book of Acts, and that's not a mistake. Uh, no, it's not a directly an account of the resurrection. It is, however, let me say this, it is an account, an historical account of events that are marked by the resurrection. Now, what I mean by that is twofold. One, these events occurred just weeks after the resurrection, and they happened only as a result of the resurrection. Okay? Hence, worth reading and we'll unpack that as, as we go. Now, we're going to be reading Acts chapter 5. Uh, it's there on the screen if you want to follow it there in a, one of the Bibles in, in the seats or one that you happen to bring with you. Uh, it's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four Gospels, Acts. And then the, book of, the letters of the New Testament begin from there. Acts chapter 5 is where we are. We're starting in verse 12 to kind of get a sense of the flow of events. We're going to be honing in, just to be honest with you, uh, not the entire passage, but we're going to be honing in on three verses at the very end, 30 through 32. Okay, so verses 30, 31, 32 is where we're really going to be camping out here. We're going to start in verse 12. Hear now God's word. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, 
so that even, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside." Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in the prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Let's pause for a minute to pray. Lord Jesus, you were powerfully at work there that day, uh, in that setting with the apostles as they stood before the council, the senate of the people. And a powerful testimony was born uh, through you, to you, and it reverberates now even to us today. And oh, would you help us to hear? Uh, would you please uh, help every one of us, whatever our story is, wherever we are in our, in our faith journey here this morning, uh, whatever the state of our hearts, our minds may be, uh, whatever it is that is upon uh, our, our thoughts, um, even as we are sitting here on this Easter morning, uh, we ask that you would meet us where we are and you would speak, speak to the innermost part of our being and change us, help us to see the reality of these events and their implications even for us today. Oh, Jesus, would you please be merciful? Would you please be merciful? We pray in your name, amen. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, what, what, was, what does that mean? What does that mean? C.S. Lewis, in a sermon that he preached um, in Oxford, uh, we know it today as the weight of glory. You can probably find it online. 
uh, if you were to Google it, uh, explored something of the implications of the statement, which is a bold one, Jesus is Lord. This is what Lewis said. It is not so much of our time and so much of our attention that God demands. It is not even all our time and all our attention. It is ourselves. For each of us, the Baptist's words are true. He's referring to John the Baptist there. He must increase and I decrease. He will be infinitely merciful to our repeated failures. I know no promise that he will accept a deliberate compromise. For he has, in the last resort, nothing to give us but himself. And he can give that only insofar as our self-affirming will retires and makes room for him and our souls. Let us make up our minds to it. There will be nothing of our own left over to live on, no ordinary life. I do not mean that each of us will necessarily be called to be a martyr or even an ascetic. That's as may be. For some, nobody knows which. The Christian life will include much leisure, many occupations we naturally like, but these will be received from God's hands. In a perfect Christian, they would be as Christian, they would be as much as part of his religion, his service, as his hardest duties, and his feasts would be as Christian as his fasts. What cannot be admitted, what must exist only, as an undefeated but daily resisted enemy is the idea of something that is our own, some area in which we are to be out of school, on which God has no claim, for he claims all. Because he is love and must bless, he cannot bless us unless he has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, he claims all. There is no bargaining with him. Now, the orthodox historic Christian position from the beginning has been that what Lewis is saying here is directly applicable and attributable to the lordship of Christ. That is to say, Jesus claims all, and there is no bargaining with him. Now, what would make him worthy of such trust? What would make Jesus worthy of such loyalty? How would we know what proof, what evidence has been given? Well, it's the empty tomb, the historical reality of his resurrection. In fact, we can go so far as to say this. With the resurrection, God has reversed the verdict. He has reversed the verdict, showing us our need to entrust ourselves to Jesus. Now you say, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean when you say reverse the verdict? Well, that's the theme of the text. That's the theme of the text that we just read here a moment ago from Acts chapter 5. This, this account, these two verdicts, one from a lower court, one from a higher court. And we need to unpack that and take a look at it. But before we do that, before we do that, we need to consider the record before us. This historical record before us. Because the stakes are incredibly high. They could not be higher. So can we, in fact, trust what we're reading? Can we actually say this is true? Did it, in fact, happen? Well, let me just, if I may, take a core sample of the mountain of evidence that we have 
that says, yes, in fact, we can trust this. This is, in fact, historically reliable. What we're reading here in Luke-Acts, and I call it Luke-Acts because Luke wrote, some of you may know, a two-volume work. Volume one, we know, is the Gospel of Luke. Volume two is what we call the Book of Acts. So I say Luke-Acts. Many historians will tell you we can date Luke-Acts to a time of having been written roughly around, get this, somewhere between 60 and 62 A.D., between 60 and 62 A.D., that's just a few decades, just a very few decades after the events that we read of in the, in the Gospels. Uh, how do we know, though? How can we mark that? Well, you can actually mark it not just by what is included in Luke-Acts, but by what is excluded from Luke-Acts. And you say, wait, what? How, what does that explain that to me? Okay, two events, two things that take place after 60-62 AD that are not recorded in Luke-Acts that surely would have been had they taken place at the time Luke is writing the, his, what he's writing. Does that make sense? So two events. Let me give you, give you these. First, the fall of Jerusalem, 70 AD. Okay? This, historically, there's no denial when this was. This is when the, the, the Roman army besieges the city of Jerusalem. The temple falls, the temple, you need to understand, has been the spiritual, political capital of God's people for some thousand years. And tens of thousands of Jews die in the course of this, and yet you find no mention of this, no mention of this whatsoever in the book of Acts. What does that tell you? What does that tell you, class? Think about it. Let me give an example, a more, a more contemporary example. So let's say you're reading a book on, on uh, the World Trade Center, all right? You, pick, you go to a used bookstore and you find this book in the World Trade Center. You go, oh, that's cool. I'll pick that up. I'm going to read it. You start leaving through it, and you find all this inter interesting information about it. You know, so it's actually, it was, was uh, seven buildings in the entire complex, two huge towers, 110 stories, 50,000 people working in the World Trade Center. It's so big, the complex is so huge, it has its own zip code. You read all kinds of interesting facts and da-da-da. King Kong climbed it, didn't know that. You know, all these interesting facts about the World Trade Center, okay? And then it just stops. And there's no mention of two planes flying into it. And the, those two towers falling as they did. Now, what does that tell you? That book had to have been written before September 11, 2001. How do you know that? Because of what is left out. Do you see? The fall of Jerusalem, it's the same logic. Let me give you another example. Not just the fall of Jerusalem, but the death of the apostle Paul. Paul is the central figure in the early church. And we know the man was beheaded Likely in Rome during the reign of Emperor Nero sometime between 62-65 A.D. How much of that do you read in the book of Acts? Zilch. How can that be? How, what does that tell you in terms of when the book Luke-Acts was written? In terms of where on the timeline we can put it? Let me give you another example. Okay, just coming a little closer, but a little further away in history. You go to a used bookstore, and you find, or maybe let's say it's an estate sale. You'll get why I'm saying that here in a minute. And, and you find this crusty, brown, moldy old book on the life of Abraham Lincoln. And you're flipping through, and you're finding about his years in Kentucky and Illinois and the log cabin and his early political life and all the defeats and his lock practice. And you read about his inauguration address and the Gettysburg address and different battles that are fought. And then his last public address, and then boom, it stops. 
Wait, that's it? No mention of his assassination. John Wilkes Booth doesn't make the book. How does that happen? It, what does it tell you? It tells you that that book was written before April 14th, 1865, when Lincoln was gunned down in Ford's Theater. How do you know? Because of what's left out. Paul's death left out. Fall of Jerusalem left out. What does it tell you? It tells you how old Luke Acts is. It tells you that we actually have a reliable source, something that was written within just a few decades of the events that we're reading of here in the gospel accounts. This is not mythical. What Zheng Mi was reading from the book of Luke earlier, the resurrection account, was not the stuff of myth. It's too early. It's too early. The, the witnesses, the living witnesses, could have done fact-checking in a moment if any lies or half-truths have been thrown into this thing. It won't work. It can't happen. It doesn't compute. It's not a source of, this is not a stuff of myth. And what does that call for? It calls for consistency. It calls for a fair hearing, a willingness to take this at face value just as we would with any other reputable historical document, which is what we have. Now, I belabor that point because the stakes are high. If this is true, and it is, then there are implications here. Huge implications here. That gets us to these two courts. I mentioned that earlier. You're probably wondering, when is he going to get to that? I'm so glad you held on. Um, we have two verdicts from two courts, a lower court and a higher court. The verdict of the lower court, that's what we read of here in verse 30. That is to say, the Senate, the council of the Jewish people. Verse 30 in the account, uh, this is where we're camping out for the next bit. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. So what did they think of Jesus? How did they assess who he was? They killed him. They wanted nothing to do with him. They got rid of him. That's their verdict. That's the verdict of this lower court. And, and by the way, this is part of the pattern. Uh, the way the apostles are speaking here is part of the pattern as you read through the book of Acts uh, that you see again and again and again. The pattern starts with this first point. You killed him. You killed him. You eliminated him. You eliminated him. You saw him as a threat. A threat to the people. The Jewish officials of the time saw Jesus as a blaspheming false teacher who would surely lead the people astray. They saw him as a threat to the people, but not just that, a threat to their power. It's alluded to even in this passage. Pilate picks up on it in his examination, the cross-examination of Jesus. Uh, and as the Jewish officials are standing there before him and there's this back and forth there on that Good Friday. And Pilate could pick up on the fact that it was out of jealousy and envy that they were bringing this rabbi into his, his presence. They saw him as a threat, and so they put him on a tree, a cross. It's another way of referring to the cross. Now, the cross was designed to be, by the Romans, the most dreadful, horrific Painful, shameful way to die, to, put, to, do it, to do so publicly, to make a statement before the whole people. 
as to who is in, really in power here. But it's not just that. There's actually a deep memory that the Jewish people, as they're watching this transpire, and the Jewish officials are insisting we're going to put this guy on a tree, there's something they mean, something they, they, they understand about this. And if you want to keep your thumb there in the book of Acts, let's go all the way back to Deuteronomy, okay? Way back into history. To Deuteronomy, this is uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Sorry, it's not on the screen. Don't worry, AV guys, don't scramble. I forgot to give it to you. Uh, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. Listen to the reference here. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, he is put to death, and he is put to death, you hang him, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So you see, for the Jewish council, their assessment of this Jesus, this heretic, this blasphemer, is not only they want him to die a painful, shameful death, they want him to die a death that will communicate this man has been cursed by God. They want him to be eliminated. And so they did, or so they tried. And also with it, they want this movement of his to be suppressed. And that's what we're reading of here in Acts 5. Now you can hear their frustrated determination. If you go back and read a few chapters earlier in the book of Acts, you'll find that this is actually not the first, but the second time that they have tried to deal with these delusional fanatics of this itinerant rabbi that they have done away with. They're, they're, so they're just frustrated in trying to, to, to be rid of this. They just can't stamp it out. But it's not just that. It's not just the frustration you sense here, but a sense of stubborn opposition. There's no pausing here. Think with me of the insanity. Like, keep in mind everything we just read, right? There's no pausing here to consider the signs and wonders, the miraculous healings that have been taking place. There's no pausing on the part of these men to consider, huh, wonder what's up with that. There's no stopping to ask the question, huh, how'd they get out of that jail? What's going on with that? There's no pausing to, to, to wrestle with, with, with those kinds of questions. There's no stopping to ask whether or not the message they are proclaiming about this life was in fact true. Why? Because they've made up their minds. Their verdict is in. The man was to be eliminated the movement is to be suppressed, period. And they want nothing to do with him, and so they will keep him at arm's length. Now, that response is very much alive today. The response of wanting nothing to do with Jesus and keeping him at arm's length. I'll, let me try and divide this up into two different groups of people that respond in that way, they looks on the surface very, very differently, but at root, it's the same thing. Now, those of you who've been part of our adult Sunday school class the last few weeks, you're going to recognize some, some things of what I'm going to say here. 
So two groups of people. You have the irreligious people and the religious people. Okay? Over here, the irreligious people want to live as their own lords in disobedience to God's commands. Okay? They want to live, the irreligious want to live as, and by the way, just a quick timeout. I don't like these terms, irreligious and religious, just as a quick aside, because the fact of the matter is every human being is religious. We all come at life with certain faith positions, certain ground baseline assumptions that are in fact positions of faith. Every atheist is a religious person of faith. Now, I don't mean that in the traditional definition of the term, but in the sense of operating out of certain faith assumptions about life and the world and the purpose and meaning of everything, or lack thereof, that's a faith assumption. So, point be told, strictly speaking, everybody's religious. But just for argument's sake, stay with me over here. I'm rudely interrupting myself. Okay, so you have over here the religious people. Sorry, the irreligious people, the irreligious people who are living as their own lords in disobedience to God's commands, wanting to keep Jesus at arm's length. Over here, you have the religious people who are living in obedience to God's commands as their own lords, again wanting to keep Jesus at arm's length. You see the commonality? They both want to keep Jesus at arm's length. How do you see that today? Well, I mean, well, at least in that day, you would say, okay, well, we'll call the Romans the irreligious folks, and we'll call the Jewish authorities the religious folks. Uh, maybe today we could say the religious folks are the people that are attending churches and mosques and temples and synagogues. And over here we'll say, just for argument's sake, the irreligious, the nuns. Okay, those just don't have any affiliation, strictly speaking, formally speaking at all. What do they have in common? On the surface, they look entirely different. Their lifestyles, you know, just how they spend their time, what their priorities are, you know, where they go for vacation, what they spend their money on, whatever. It all looks completely different. But at root bottom, they're exactly the same because in their response to Jesus, they say, we don't want anything to do with him. We're going to keep him at arm's length. And if the truth be told, we would have done with him. Those responses are very alive today. But here's the deal. With the resurrection, that verdict has been overturned. With the resurrection, that decision has been reversed. It doesn't stand. A higher court has weighed in. The lower court now is mute, has nothing to say. Because this higher court has weighed in. And that brings us now to the third point, the verdict of this higher court, verses 30 through 32. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Again, this was the pattern of apostolic te preaching, teaching, the message that you can see repeated again and again through the book of Acts. You killed him, but God raised him, and we are witnesses. That's the three-part message. You see it again and again and again through the book of Acts. You killed him, but God raised him, and we are witnesses. God raised him. The resurrection 
That's a reference to the miraculous rising of Jesus from the tomb that we celebrate here on this Easter Sunday and, frankly, every Sunday. It's deep history, by the way. It's being appealed to here. don't know if you picked up on that, but there in uh, verse 30, as the apostles make reference to the God of our fathers did this. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did this. You killed him, religious leaders, people well-steeped in the Bible. You killed him. The God of our fathers raised him. Do you see the stark, horrific contrast that's being drawn there? You killed him. The God of our, ostensibly our, fathers raised him. Deep, deep history being spoken to here and and flowing all the way up into now recent events. But God raised him. God raised him. And you say, you say that we're, you know, all Jerusalem is is, um, uh, stirred up uh, about this. Well, of course they are. They're still writing about it in the Jerusalem Gazette. The memory is that fresh. People are still talking about it in the coffee shops. You know, by this point, so little time has passed, the wood of the cross, wherever it is, hasn't had a chance to rot yet. The garden of the tomb is still in bloom. That's how little time has passed. So, of course, people remember what it is that happened. Of course, they know what it is that we are speaking of and preaching of, this message that we are declaring. And, yeah, they know his blood is on your hands you know what else? God raised him up. God raised him up. He's raised. Raised in the resurrection, raised in his exaltation. That is spoken of here again. Also, I should say, in the text. Raised to a high position. Raised to the right hand of God. The highest position that could be spoken of. The position of honor and power and authority at the side of the king of the king of the kings. At his right hand, declared to be leader, a word that means chief or captain or prince or author or founder. It's a big word. Um, Raised as leader, raised as savior. A word that means deliverer, preserver. A word that in the Old Testament was only used to describe Yahweh. Okay, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Think about the shocking implications now of the the high position that the apostles, these Jewish men are saying that Jesus has been raised to and the positions that are now his as leader and savior. And now the prerogatives, the prerogatives, the rights, the responsibilities that have been given to him to grant repentance and forgiveness of sins, which are things that only the true and living God can do. What is the verdict? What is the verdict? The verdict is in. The verdict of the lower court has been overturned. Thrown out. Nonsense. The higher court has spoken. The higher court has weighed in. Jesus has been raised. Jesus has been exalted. Now, what would it mean for us today? What would it mean for us today to hear this verdict, to heed this testimony? Let's take a cue from the apostles. 
Not a bad idea. Let's take a cue from the apostles in their response. These men who could not be silent, and the women as well. I'll just say the early church. Bring them all in. They could not be silent. They would not be silenced. Neither in their lives nor in their words. They could not unsee what they had seen. They could not unhear what they had heard. They could not rewind the tape. It's too late. They know. They know that tomb is empty. They know Jesus stepped out. They've taken this to heart, and it has shifted their entire paradigm. With nothing left out, nothing excluded, all their beliefs, all their assumptions, all their their priorities and purposes and aspirations and assumptions and goals, all of it has shifted because the tomb is empty. And they are now set apart, set apart in this world. So following their example, looking to see something of what it would mean, a good way to respond here, well, that would seem that we all need to follow in this way. We, there's every area of our lives needs to be examined and entrusted over to Jesus. Jesus, this one who has been raised, who has been exalted. Nothing claimed as our own For he claims all, and as Lewis said, there is no bargaining with him. With the resurrection, the verdict has been reversed. And ours is then to entrust ourselves to Jesus. Let me go a little further in wrapping this up. What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to to yield ourselves to his rule, to yield our lives to his kingly authority, to to entrust everything we are to him? I've been mentioning Lewis and that quote from The Weight of Glory. Uh, Some of you know that Lewis didn't just write works of, and and brilliant, by the way, brilliant works of nonfiction, but also wonderful, beautiful works of fiction. He's perhaps best known for the Chronicles of Narnia. The first volume, which the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. One of the most memorable scenes in that book, as, as Lewis is, is presenting this story, for those of you who don't know, uh, this is the story of four children from London uh, who have left London in the midst of, of the Blitz in the, in the early, well, actually the late 30s, and uh, they're out in the countryside, and they have entered through the wardrobe into this magical land of Narnia, uh, and there they meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who, by the way, are named that because they are, in fact, beavers. Um, good name. And so uh, the, these four children are in conversation uh, with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And this is, I'll just kind of pick up here in the flow of that dialogue. Is he a man? asked Lucy, one of the children. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. 
Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Jesus is not safe, but he is good. He is not safe, but he is good. So back to the question, class. What would it mean, what would it mean for us to yield the whole of our lives over to his rule, his reign? What would it mean to live as the subjects under King Jesus? Again, following the lead of the apostles, the early followers, the writings of the New Testament, even the whole of the history of the church. What would it look like? Well, you have to say from the start, it might just mean suffering. It might just mean hardship. Because the reality is to follow Jesus means to step into a clash of worldviews and a collision of kingdoms and a spiritual war that is just as real as any other one. We need to say that from the start. In terms of understanding what it means to follow Jesus. But we also need to say this. With that comes the assurance of deep inner change and transformation as Jesus, in his delight, in his love for us, makes us more like himself increasingly, slowly, but surely over time. As he gives us the sweet, holy privilege of witnessing his work, the expansion of his kingdom, as we are given the, the, the privilege, the opportunity, not just what well, it is partly sometimes just to sit on the front row seats, but also to be, can you imagine this, participants in this work. And he allows us that privilege. And in the course of that, we experience flourishing and fruitfulness as we taste something of what life was meant to be and praise God one day will be. You see, it's real. And this is true. And the lion may not be tame, but he's good. And he's alive. He's alive. With the resurrection, God has reversed the verdict showing us the need to entrust our lives to Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, Lord, our Savior, our Captain, the author, the finisher our preserver, the foundation of everything, our great deliverer, would you help us to hear the apostolic message? He is risen. Indeed, we are not just at this moment bowing our heads and speaking to the ceiling or the floor. But you sit at the right hand of the Father, Glad to hear us pray right now. 
And because of your work, your finished work on our behalf, our voices, our cries are heard. We have seen in the empty tomb the death of death. And we now live life before life. We can see, we can see something already in the time we spent here this morning of the the change that this has brought. Indeed, the change that you brought in those men and women from the earliest days. How else could it have happened? Oh, would you make that change in us? Would you be so gracious, Lord Jesus, to pour out your spirit upon your people and to revive us? Oh, would you bring life to your dry, parched, hungry, thirsty people? Pray in your name. Amen.